Thanks for tuning in to the ICEF podcast. This episode is sponsored by Universidad Europea, where your passion becomes your profession. And in some countries like China, actually, there are a lot of students learning French to do business in Africa, for instance. So this is something also that we have to, to value, the fact that our language, and it's the same with Spanish, our languages are now a, a way to make your CV or to make your career, career more, you know, with a plus, with a value added. And, and this really the thing we are working on. This and more in this new episode of the ICEF podcast. Your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Bienvenidos y bienvenidas. Bienvenue a toutes et à tous to this April edition of the ISF podcast, where as a main topic we'll be discussing the appeal and options available to study in French and Spanish amidst an international student recruitment industry where English-speaking destinations or English-taught programs often seem to be the only viable or at least the preferred option. Cristina Grasset, Director at Spain Education Programs, and Olivier Chiche-Portiche, Director General at Campus France, will be joining us later for this main topic. Right after the main topic, there will be a short message from our main sponsor this month, Universidad Europea in Spain, followed by some interesting insights about Colombia in our final section, Keys to the Market. First, as in each episode, I'm glad to welcome back ISAP Monitors, Editor-in-Chief, for a brief walk through some recent news and developments. Craig Riggs, always a pleasure. Thank you, Martin. Always a pleasure to join in. Coming up, the main topic of discussion for this episode, but first, as in each month, we kick off with a look at some recent news and developments in the international student recruitment industry. Some of the news that came out this week was about the growing influence of school groups in the international K-12 sector. And I'd, I'd like to understand what this influence means, but also is that influence, say, the net influence of these groups growing, or are the groups simply growing themselves as such, leading to a greater influence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can probably look at it a couple of different ways. What we're reporting on there is a new analysis that came out of ISC Research this week in the UK. They are an authority on the international school sector. We always follow their, their research with great interest. And in this case, they're remarking on the growing proportion of school groups in the international school market. What they're describing is really a phenomenon where there is, on one hand, a consolidation within international schools, where we see groups uh, growing by acquiring existing schools or opening new ones. And school groups, I should say, are defined in, in the ISC paper as essentially clusters of schools. They either share ownership or they are all connected in some way to a company that is providing them with services without an ownership stake. And so what ISC is observing is that uh, the number of groups in the market has grown quite a bit over the last five years. About the midpoint of 2017, they were tracking 333 school groups, representing about 2,500 schools and a combined enrollment of 1.3 million students. But as of this month, those totals have grown to include 616 school groups with nearly 5,000 schools and more than 2 million students. And so, you know, what we can see is that the school group cohort within international schools is growing quickly, and it's playing a role in terms of driving the overall growth of the sector. 
what does this mean for smaller independent schools in the international K-12 sector? It might make them more appealing, maybe, due to their independence. Could very well. It's probably hard to generalize, you know, because conditions will vary quite a bit from market to market. But what I think it means is that, you know, we could step back from this trend and, and understand that private equity and investment capital is very attracted to that international school space. And so there, you know, there are a number of well-capitalized groups that are uh, in the space or entering the space now backed by large amounts of private investment. And they are no doubt looking on the lookout for acquisitions. So for independent schools in that space, I'm sure that it wouldn't be unusual for schools to be approached as potential acquisition targets by larger groups. I think that, as you say, depending on the school, depending on the market, you could understand how an independent school that's well-established and that enjoys a good reputation would have a very distinct position in the marketplace. But, the, but to your earlier question about influence, uh, one of the things that ISC is observing about this growing presence of school groups in the sector is that they essentially operate under well-identified brands that enjoy like a high level of consumer awareness. And so they're playing a role in terms of, of actually shaping the market and growing the market, drawing more families and parents to the international school sector in the process. Well, I'd be interested to know, especially in the context of our main topic, whether this growth of influence by K-12 school groups is limited or not to those groups that mainly offer English-taught programs. Mm-hmm. The international schools that are tracked by ISC are mainly concerned with delivering either wholly or in part English instruction. Typically, they're delivering a, a curriculum, either an international curricula or a curricula from an English-speaking country for an audience of students that is intending to study abroad eventually. Right. Well, it's impressive to see those numbers grow. Um, and then talking about growth, I read about international enrollment recovery being underway in the so-called Big Four, mm-hmm. Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US, which in itself is positive news, of course. But what does this recovery look like when we compare the four countries with each other? As I imagine that the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, inflation, questions about the continuing potential of the Chinese market, and I could go on, do not impact each of the four countries in the same way. No, they they really don't. And I mean, that's partly what got us going down this track recently is that we were thinking about the composition of the foreign enrollment in each of those top four destinations and trying to understand how it might be changing at this sort of latter stage of the pandemic that we find ourselves in now. If we go back to 2018 or 2019 and look at each of those destinations, it would be fair to say that each was heavily reliant uh, in different proportions on China and India. Those two countries together, China and India, made up 50% or more of total foreign enrollment in, in those three leading destinations, somewhat less in the UK, but uh, still, you know, 30, 40% of foreign enrollment in the UK uh, at that point. And so what we're trying to observe now is how is that enrollment coming back after the, you know, well-documented decline during the last couple of years? And, you know, where are the students coming from now? And there's some interesting findings, I think, to be made in that respect. Uh, The the overall pattern that we're observing is that, indeed, the recovery is is well underway. In the case of the UK, international numbers have already surpassed what they were before the pandemic. In the case of Canada, the pandemic decline has largely been erased, and and those student numbers have returned, again, to pre-pandemic levels. 
Um, pattern is a little bit different in the U.S., where the recovery is, is somewhat slower, but again, some strong signs of growth uh, this year and through the latter part of, of 21. And Australia is a little bit of an outlier because as you're well aware, the Australian borders were closed to foreign students and most other foreign travelers until just the middle of December. So they've only been open now again for a couple of months or three months. And uh, it's still the student numbers have been surging back into the country since the borders reopened. And, uh, and we can see strong signs of recovery in Australia as well. well. How reliable is that recovery? Is it true recovery or can it be linked to this so-called pent up demand? I think a little bit of both. But what's interesting to observe is that the student numbers that are coming back now are not necessarily coming from those same core markets that we've always been looking at. Outbound numbers out of China are actually a little bit soft for most destinations this year. But what we are seeing is that growth from other markets in Africa, in uh, Europe, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia and South Asia are making up for some of those slower outflows from uh, a major market like China. So those are the two key things that we're really trying to observe right now. One is what is happening with the Chinese market and how will it continue to progress through the rest of this year? And the other is what are the other growth markets for some of these key destinations that are really driving that recovery this year? Because it's important for institutions to continue this growth is to really diversify their efforts in terms of recruiting students from different destinations, including new and growing source countries, as some of the ones that we've been discussing in our Keys to the Market section. We'll, of course, keep following all this on icefmonitor.com. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we look at international education and ask, is studying in English the only viable option? Joining me for the main topic are Christina Grasset, Director at Spain Education Programs, and Olivier Chichportich, Director General at Campus France. A warm welcome to you both. Uh, how about a brief introduction followed by your answer to the question, which is also the title of this episode? International education is studying in English the only viable option. Christina. Um, yes, well, first, uh, thank you very much, uh, Martin, for the invitation. It's great to be here having this conversation also with Olivier. My professional background, which has to do with Spain education programs, was um, at the start of my career when I started working with uh, U.S. universities in Spain, and I was helping them set up their campuses here. And I soon realized that there was a um, a vacuum in promoting the good Spanish universities as quality destination. So I moved on to that sector and we created Spain education programs to do precisely that, which was basically give support to institutions of higher education in identifying areas where they had international potential, helping them develop international programs in those specific areas that would enable them to increase their international enrollment about our organization. It uh, has a very flexible structure. We work on very different projects and uh, we hire a team of experts for each one of the projects that we're going to be working on. And basically our mission is to help our partner universities identify universities and design effective strategies to further internationalization while we advocate to eradicate barriers and improve outcomes through informed decision-making. So, Christina, how would you answer the question? Is studying in English really the only viable option? 
Well, not the only viable option. I think it's definitely the current state of affairs in terms of the trend in the world. And I think there's a lot of advantages that we can draw from that state of affairs. Thanks, uh, Christina. So not the only viable option, but the current state of affairs, which, as you say, actually provides advantages as well. Uh, Olivier, may I ask you the same question? And uh, please do provide us with a brief introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Martin, for inviting uh, Campus France. As you know, Campus France is quite a, a young organization. We just celebrate our 10 years of existence. And um, I would say um, we are a government agency depending on Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Higher Education from both sides. We are working with 300 and more institutions, all the universities, but also the French business school, engineering school, vocational, etc., etc. So we have a real representative uh, offer of programs in our promotion activities. So Campus France was created in a way to diversify the number of international students to France. As you know, and obviously, uh, the two-thirds of our international students are coming from French-speaking countries, most of them from Maghreb and uh, African Subsaharian. So that was our natural and, of course, very important and strategic uh, current of students coming to France. But what our Ministry of Education told us at, at that time, we need to diversify. We need to, of course, to bring other uh, nationalities, other countries to come to study to France, and especially Asia. And of course, also Latin America, even if Latin America was more francophone. So that's why we started with this objective. And there were no other way that to uh, try to, uh, to attract them through programs taught in English. So we definitely had very difficulties at the beginning, um, talking about the tw uh, 20, 2010, very, very uh, hurdles to, uh, to get understood by the university the importance of having uh, programs taught in English, but this is changing a lot, drastically. It's a new change, a new state of mind, and this comes from uh, a law in uh, 2013, uh, what we call a loi Fioraso, that allowed for the first time French University to give programs in English, and not only the business school and the engineering schools. Thank you very much, Olivier. So uh, English, very important, even in the countries where English is not the native language, let alone the main language in the education system. Let's take a look first at what is it that makes English so dominant? Or maybe, Craig, a simple question with an answer that may not be as obvious as one might expect. What has made English so dominant in international education? Well, I think that in many respects, English has become the kind of lingua franca of international commerce and exchange. And so for students that are pursuing uh, studies abroad, uh, many of, uh, of those students, of course, have traditionally been drawn to English-speaking destinations. And many will have been hoping to pursue careers either in those destinations or in some aspect of, of, uh, of international business or otherwise. And so for all of those students, command of English has been seen as, as a very important skill, both for purposes of education, but for their careers as well. You know, the expansion of English taught programs, in, in notably in France and in uh, Turkey and in, in a number of countries throughout Europe, it reflects that demand for English medium instruction. 
but none of that takes away from the importance of instruction in, in French, in Spanish as well. We see those things in balance, even though there is strong demand for English taught programs, that there remains you know, strong demand for other study in other languages as well. What's the outlook? I mean, the, I think what's further increasing the importance of English is probably the Bologna Declaration, globalization, the rise of internet, some of the main science publications are in English, uh, K to 12, we just spoke about it, majority in English. Is this, is this going to further expand and increase the importance of English? Or is there, do you foresee a trend whereby other languages will rise in importance and there's a healthier uh, level playing field? Mm -hmm. I think that those are all factors that are fueling sort of global demand for English skill and in English study. Um, but I think that we can understand as well that those patterns are fueled by broader sort of underlying factors in terms of, um, you know, population growth, language usage, otherwise economic growth, you know, for, for given the rising importance, for example, of markets across Latin America, you can see that uh, Spanish is much more widely studied uh, outside of outside of Latin America than it would have been otherwise, right? In previous years, so it's uh, Spanish is is widely taught in the U.S., for example, right? In, in part because of the growing population of native Spanish speakers in the U.S., but also because of growing commercial ties between the U.S. and markets throughout Latin America. So that is, is one factor. We can see the same thing playing out in China. I mean, China has in itself, we talk about those top four destinations, but the top, the fifth largest destination uh, pre-pandemic was China. And that reflects, on the one hand, the expansion of higher education opportunities for foreign students in China. It reflects also the growing importance of China on the world stage, right? China is by some measures already the world's largest economy. And the uh, as goes economic growth, so goes career opportunities, and so goes student interest in learning the language of that economy, right? So it's a, so I think that we can see that some of those broader sort of global factors that are at work are also shaping the nature of global demand in terms of language of study. Christina and Olivier, both your organizations have responded to the opportunity in international education by rapidly expanding a portfolio of English-taught programs. But in principle, is that really the best way forward? Isn't that a form of surrender to the dominance of English? Olivier? You know how to talk to a French-speaking guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, no, it's not surrender at all. It's a, it's a win-win solution, and, and we're well aware of that, that for sure. Why? Because we had a, a survey about that, that 80% of the international students, English-speaking initially coming to France, even on the English-taught program, they will definitely speak French. At the end, they will not maybe be like a very dumb, uh, mastering French as, as a, or fluently French, but at least they will have this culture because it's not about it's not only about French. It's also about culture. It's about the way how we can, you know, uh, give this soft power and 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 so so it was really a way to uh, to attract a new profile, new community, new origin of students. And, and actually before it was going well. And this is something interesting, but on the other way, we have to notice, and that's what uh, Craig said also, that uh, French like Spanish 
now they are also uh, not dominant, but they are really a, a way of distinguish yourself. And in some countries like China, actually, there are a lot of students learning French to do business in Africa, for instance. So this is something also that we have to, to value, the fact that our language, and it's the same with Spanish, our languages are now a, a way to make your CV or to make your career, career more, you know, with a plus, with a value added. And, and this really is the thing we are working on. We have 1,700 uh, programs taught in English right now in France, and we have all of them in our website. So you can find, but then be sure that, what's, that when you're here, you will learn French, and then you will be, do business with other countries like, uh, like in Africa, which is the best example. Interesting. So Olivier, you're, you're in a way using English as bait to attract international students to then emerge them into the French language, French culture, and everything of all the beautiful things that France and the language have to offer. Um, I think it's a very smart approach. Christina, is this comparable to the strategy that you are using? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with everything that Olivier said. The fact that all of these schools, international schools, are teaching their students in English and that English has become such a relevant medium of instruction, what it does is it enables our universities to attract these students and then um, create transition programs by which they can start, for example, their undergraduate degrees in English, and then they can start taking um, courses in Spanish as they become more familiar with the language, and eventually they will learn Spanish. That's that's one, one of the things that we're doing. The, the other thing is, I think it's, it's a very healthy thing to be competing with other systems of education. I think the fact that we are attracting these students who already speak English, but you know we're giving them the opportunity to learn Spanish. I think the, the global trend is moving toward professionals speaking three languages, more than two, and that at the same time, they're be becoming interculturally competent because that's one of the things that our programs are focusing on. So it is the fact that they will transition and study in Spanish, but also that they will acquire these intercultural competences that will enable them then to use their English, their Spanish to work successfully, work and live successfully anywhere in the world. Yeah, I think it's really very interesting. And what works in your advantage is that studying in English at an institution in France or Spain means that international students will not only improve their English, but are also likely indeed to learn the second global language being French or Spanish. And I imagine this is something very appealing that agencies may not always uh, realize, uh, Olivier. Yes, exactly. And uh, we notice also a trend, a change, sorry, of, uh, of our programs uh, taught in English. Basically, they were more into business and engineering. And, and now it's uh, turning to... Uh, also to law, to economics, even to, uh, to environment, sciences. So now we, we cover all the disciplines, and not only business, all the disciplines uh, are taught in English. And this is also the need of students who want to come to France 
to benefit from also the uh, academic excellency of French universities in all fields. So that's why we need to improve the number of programs taught in English and make it more comprehensive. Is your objective next to improving those programs also to expand and increase the number of programs in English? Or are you now going to focus back on maybe making the French programs more appealing from the start? No, actually, we, we know we uh, Campus France launched a kind of label, Bienvenue en France. We, mm-hmm. we are now trying to uh, organizing uh, all the welcoming package of universities. And we gave them like, one star, two stars, three stars. And this is something which is part of our communication campaign. And, and it's true that uh, programs taught in English are part of the criteria, very important. So we press them to increase the number uh, of uh, programs taught in English. But at the same time, we also ask, ask them to accompany the programs taught in English with programs of French. So it's not only English, as I said, it's always the idea of and parallel tracks. And I would say another thing. In another survey two years ago, 76% of the international students who chose one for the language and for the culture. So we cannot just say, okay, we we go all to English. It's it's not going to work. Even the Asian countries that we were aiming, they come to France for French. So this is something like uh, we have to deal also. Interesting. So so 76% of your international students actually study in, in French. I guess it's around this number. Uh, with only 1,600 programs taught in English, obviously a great majority comes and study in French, for sure. And, and Christina, so as you are developing and introducing more and more programs taught in English, who is teaching? Are these Spanish instructors and teachers that now have to teach in English, or are you attracting the teachers from overseas? That's a very interesting question. I think both, both of the trends are, are happening in Spain. I think uh, a lot of our faculty have got their doctoral degrees, which are pretty much now mandatory to teach in a Spanish university, and they have their doctoral degrees in the United States. And so those are well qualified to teach in English. And the other thing is our universities have been able to attract professors, university professors from abroad because in a university setting, there's a number of studies that demonstrate that the factor that has more influence in the learning of students and cultural immersion is their contact with their professors. And so when you bring two or three international professors into uh, an academic discipline in a Spanish university, you're basically internationalizing the entire department and the entire university from within. I think what's reflecting here is a much more sophisticated idea of international education. It's an oversimplification of the student experience to uh, focus on the language of instruction, because of course, both France, Spain are major study destinations in their own right for students at all levels of study. And the student may be drawn to an English medium program, particularly if they have less facility in the official language of that country otherwise. And we have to remember that for many international students, they will have studied English during their primary and secondary school education in their home countries, right? So that's the, that's the language on which it's easier for them to move. But as Olivia quite rightly points out, right, you can have those experiences in parallel. If you choose to study in France, you may be choosing an English medium program, but you're also choosing to immerse yourself in the French language and French culture, the same as in Spain. I think that notion of 
you know, the internationalized classroom and the rich cultural experience that students are pursuing along with their field of study is really important to hold in mind in a conversation like this. It's like two worlds moving closer together, right? The world of international education, uh, meaning that the destinations such as Spain and France are offering programs in English, whereas the students that are enrolling in these programs immerse themselves in the local culture, which is probably a very good example indeed of everything that international education uh, is about. Um, this is the last question, um, Christina and Olivier, for both of you. Can you give us some examples of initiatives to further promote the programs in your local language? Well, this is uh, actually all our job. All our mission is to promote French higher education. And as I said, it's the great majority in French-speaking uh, uh, programs. So yes, we do attend a lot. Every student fairs all worldwide, we're organizing a lot of uh, communication campaign. We have this communication, I told you, Bienvenue en France, which is now Rendezvous en France, which has been uh, launched during the pandemic period. was very important because to let the student know that France is still open. It was open while the rest of the world was closed or most most of the rest of the world. Uh, so so we, we had to communicate about that. We had to communicate about security, about health, about everything. And that's what we are doing every day. And this is actually uh, the job of my colleagues here to uh, promote and give maximum visibility of, of the French institutions, whatever it is in English or French and or other languages, because we said English, but we also have a program taught in Spanish too in South of France uh, universities. So you see, it's a, it's a multi-language uh, uh, country and we have to, uh, to value this also because you come to France, okay, but you will you will benefit from multicultural country too. Well, interesting. Well, Christina, another competitor for you, Spanish in the south of France. Yes, and that is wonderful. You know, like I said earlier in the conversation, competition and things being done well by other European countries is just going to make us all better. So that's excellent. Um, I wanted to make a comment on promoting programs in Spanish. And I have to say that it is not a very difficult job. Because like Olivier was saying, any student who's interested in coming and completing a degree in Spain, they do so because of the language and the culture. And so they naturally, if we provide the adequate transition programs, they naturally are going to transition and they will actually be very eager and very proud that they are start with English, but then move on and start completing their university courses in Spanish. And so the one thing that we're focusing on is on our recruitment efforts, like, you know, Francis doing too, uh, also working with the universities. There are now 33% of all Spanish universities are offering degrees that are at least taught 50% in English. And I know that offering a degree that, that is 100% in English uh, seems like a lot of English, but again, all of the degrees are doubled so it doesn't mean you must complete it all in English, but, you know, you, you can if you want, but they will most likely take courses in Spanish. And uh, I think also developing our transition programs is being key. And those in pre-college programs, which are not very well known, but there's quite a few of them now, and they're very good in Spain for um, students to have the opportunity they're normally coming from international schools for all over the world, and they come and do a one, two, three-week pre-college experience in a Spanish university, and it really helps them 
And uh, it also helps the university be aware of what these students need. And also the gap year programs, because our systems, both in France and Spain, probably in most of Europe, I think are very different than, for example, U.S. university degrees. And so students do need the support of some kind of a transition. We want them to come to Spain, but we want it to be successful in, in their studies here. And so those transition programs that can be international foundation years or gap year programs just help them do that, get ready to really get immersed in the Spanish university system and succeed. I think you're both making very clear now that in international education, English is not the only viable option. It's a very viable option. It's a dominant option. But obviously, there are lots of very appealing alternatives and alternative destinations where students can enroll in English, follow a bilingual program, or of course, in the local language. And I hope that the agencies around the world appreciate the large portfolio of opportunities that exist across multiple destinations worldwide. And it's great to hear from organizations like Spain Education Programs and uh, Campus France, but your initiatives to welcome students, but to not walk away from your own language and your own culture. And I can only applaud that. Thank you very much, uh, Christina and Olivier. And for more information about Campus France, please visit campusfrance.org. And for Christina's organization, Spain Education Programs, you can go to Spain Edu Programs, Spain, E-D-U, P-R-O-G-R-A-M-S dot E-S. But as always, you can also email us via podcast at isaf.com should you wish to connect with Christina or Olivier. Coming up, keys to the market, where this month we focus on Colombia. But first, a message from our sponsor, Universidad Europea, where your passion becomes your profession. Universidad Europea is an innovative private institution with five campuses in Spain, two in Madrid, one in Valencia and two in the Canary Islands. The institution offers a large variety of programmes that are very popular with international students, especially in health and medicine. 40% of the Universidad Europea students are international and represent altogether 110 different nationalities, with the largest groups from France, Italy, Latin America and Central America, whilst enrolments from the Middle East and North Africa are increasing. Especially popular are programmes like dentistry, psychology, medicine and physiotherapy, which are all available in English and Spanish. In these programmes, students are learning by doing, thanks to an innovative academic model based on an experiential learning methodology. The success of Universidad Europea's programmes and teaching model translates into an impressive employability rate of 90%. Very important for the growth of international student enrolments at Universidad Europea is the agency network. UE works with agencies that have a profound understanding of what students want, where they wish to go and at what price and quality. Partner agencies can count on the support of a dedicated agency department that provides support to currently more than 100 agencies. We should add that Spain is a very safe country with a high quality of life, yet with substantially lower costs of living and costs of education compared to the USA or the UK. If you're interested to learn more about Universidad Europea and explore partnership opportunities, please visit the website universidadeuropea.com or email us at podcast at icef.com and we'll put you in contact. 
And now, in the final section of this episode, we look at keys to the market. And this month, we focus on Colombia. Talking about French and Spanish, um, Spanish is also the official language of most Latin American countries, including, of course, Colombia, our focus country this month. It is therefore no surprise that Spain is one of the top study destinations among Colombia's more than 50,000 international students, just behind numbers one and two, the US and Argentina, and ahead of Australia, France, and Germany. Craig, Colombia has become the second largest sending country of international students in Latin America, just behind Brazil. What can you tell us about this rapid rise in the number of Colombian students abroad? Well, I think there are a few things to say about the Colombian market. First of all, this is a market that has a couple of fundamentals that we always pay a lot of attention to. One is economic strength, and the other is a large or growing college-age population. And certainly both are true for Colombia. Colombia is the third largest economy in Latin America, after only Mexico and Brazil. There are some cautions around the economic outlook for this year, because as is true in many other parts of the world, Colombia is battling a significant inflation. And so the uh, Colombian government and the central bank are intervening to raise interest rate and fighting uh, rising prices across the country. And so that, that puts a bit of a dampening expectation on the economic forecast for this year. But overall, there's no question that there is real strength there in the economy and that it's they've seen steady growth leading up to and now following the pandemic. So the other thing that is significant about Colombia is that there is tremendous demand, both for language learning and for higher education. A tertiary enrollment in Colombia has grown considerably over the last couple of decades, and there are strong higher education institutions in the country, but still demand continues to outstrip supply. And so we've seen a considerable growth in the numbers of students going out of the country uh, over the last several years, a 50% increase in outbound students going mainly abroad for higher ed alone uh, through 2015 and, and 2019. So that's a pretty significant growth trajectory and a volume of outbound that places Colombia amongst some of the really important growth markets in our sector. Yeah, we often talk about these countries in keys to the market indeed, and uh, rightfully so as source countries, but more and more countries are discovering the many advantages of promoting their education system and their schools and attracting international students. How is that for Colombia? What about Colombia as a study destination? It's a great question. I think the answer for Colombia could be applied to most Latin American countries. I mean, there are a number of countries throughout the region that have really well-established higher education systems, right? The quality and the and the capacity of those systems is quite strong. From Mexico to uh, Argentina to uh, to Colombia itself uh, to Brazil, and part of the history of study abroad in Colombia and in Latin America more broadly is study abroad within the region. Indeed, if we look at the number one study destination for Colombian students today it's Argentina. So students are moving within the region. A lot of that movement historically has been quite informal. And we're paying attention now to some of the initiatives that you can see developing within the region to kind of enable more student movement within Latin America. There have been moves in recent years to establish cords that are approaching something like the Bologna process in Europe, where degrees can be more widely recognized from country to country, and there can be you know, better understood equivalencies between different fields or programs of study. That is still very much in the theoretical stage, like a lot of that work still has to happen, but you can definitely see movement in that direction. We do see that over the last several years, that Colombian students have been exploring 
a wider range of destinations in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand, in Europe, in addition to regional uh, study destinations. And that will be, I think, a big question for the market going forward is, you know, to what extent does student mobility expand to other destinations within Latin America? And to what extent does it reach further beyond that to some of the other global destinations? Right. Well, for those interested to meet with qualified and carefully screened Colombian student recruitment agents, you may want to consider attending ISEF Latin America in Sao Paulo in September and our ISEF Mexico Colombia Roadshow in March 2023. Also, in the context of our main topic, I'd like to highlight our ISEF French education event, which will take place in Montreal next month, May 2022 and ISEF Spanish Education, which will take place again next year. You can find information about all our upcoming events via ISEF.com events. Muchísimas gracias, Cristina. Merci beaucoup, Olivier. And thanks very much, of course, Craig, for your valuable time and insightful contributions. And thank you all for listening. We hope you will tune in again for our next ISEF podcast episodes in May a bonus episode uh, which will be live from next month's ISAF events in Canada and a regular episode zooming in on health and medicine programs for international students. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. This episode was sponsored by Universidad Europea, where your passion becomes your profession.